Hello, beautiful human. Thank you for joining Shit You Don't Want to Talk About. We're stoked to have you be a part of the conversation changing shit you don't want to talk about into shit to talk about. This show was created to have us open our minds and learn about new perspectives even when we don't agree with them. Please be advised. Episodes can discuss content that is not suitable for all listeners and it can be triggering. Opinions of our guests expressed on the show are their own. They do not necessarily represent the views of myself or the show. There are a few ways we could really use your support. Please share your favorite episode, especially send them to someone that could really use the content we talked about. Donate on PayPal and Patreon. Subscribe and rate the show iTunes and Spotify and follow on social media and join the conversation. It's shit to talk about. That's shit. The number two talk about links are in the episode description. Hey, Fred, thank you for joining shit. You don't want to talk about, please introduce yourself and what shit you want to talk about. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, dying multiple times and the consequences of dying multiple times. Well, shit, that's a, you know, that's a big topic to start with. Uh, so how do you know about talking about this subject? Because I feel like that's maybe something a doctor would talk about. Well, I know about it because it's happened to me. So I have... Um, been clinically dead, and I guess I can start with a definition of clinically dead, is when your heart stops and you stop breathing for 30 seconds or more. So I have been clinically dead dozens of times that we know of. So that's... Well, uh, I'm happy to have you on the podcast and that you're here. <laughs> and... Um, what happened? How did that happen? How how are you still living and not clinically that, dead? That's a great question. And I ask the doctors that fairly often um, and they don't have an answer. So I, I guess I'll go back to the summer of 2009 when this started. And I had a whole bunch of episodes where the doctors thought, I was passing out randomly um, and they didn't know why. And every time I would pass out, I would hit my head on whatever was, you know, the hardest object in the universe in my vicinity and get a concussion. <clears throat> oh, wow. So this happened about 20 times. And so as a result of hitting my head and the concussions and all the trauma that went on, I've got a good case of PTSD and post-concussion syndrome. And apparently I have a earbud syndrome because my earbud doesn't want to stay in. Um, so it took the doctors months to figure out what was going on with me. And um, they eventually figured out that I had a condition called a full heart block. So if your readers don't, or your audience doesn't know what a full heart block is, <clears throat> it's when the electrical system in your heart that tells your atria and ventricles when to pump uh, starts to misfire. And I had an extreme case. So the, the electrical nodes in my heart that were supposed to tell my heart to pump weren't sending any signals. And the backup system that your heart has, because your body's very smart and it has backup systems, weren't firing either. So my heart would stop. My blood pressure would go to zero, no blood and oxygen in the brain, and boom, you're down. And uh, oddly, it would restart every so often, you know, whether it was 30, 40 seconds. Um, we have a, an incidence of up to five minutes when it took before uh, the old ticker kicked in again. Okay, that is, there's a lot there. Uh, mm -hmm. Just so that way our audience knows a bit more about 
the concussions or what they thought the concussions were. Um, from my understanding, a concussion is when doesn't necessarily mean when you hit your head, it could be like whiplash or your, your brain is basically jolted in, in your skull, which can happen a lot when you hit your head and it causes brain swelling, I think. It can cause swelling. It can cause bruising. It can cause scar tissue. Um, okay. It can cause um, loss of functions and all sorts of things like that. Like it, it did for me. So I lost <clears throat> some memory. Um, I lost an entire language out of my head. Um, I've been reading Hebrew since I was five years old. And um, my friends brought me my prayer book one night in the hospital. I could no longer read Hebrew. It was. That's bananas. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a slippery slope. Those bananas. Um, <laughs> and <coughs> you mentioned that you got PTSD from it and that is post-traumatic stress disorder. Thank you. I was like, wait a minute, which order are the letters? And mm -hmm. that's from anticipating the fall or like being in a similar situation that could trigger the emotions that have happened, correct? It's partly that, and it's partly the subsequent traumas that I underwent and there being no clear recovery plan for what has happened to me. Okay. So um, <clears throat> they eventually put in a pacemaker uh, which we don't think went very smoothly, which is unusual because they do about 800,000 pacemakers a year worldwide. So this should be, you know, a simple 25, 30 minute operation. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason we think it didn't go well is because four years later in 2013, all this started happening again. Oh, wow. Okay. <clears throat> let's, let's pause on that one because there was one mm -hmm. other part that you mentioned from the falls was the post concussion, concussion syndrome. And what does that represent or show up for you as? It showed up as uh, memory loss slurred words, depth perception issues, balance issues. Uh, I had trouble, you know, going downstairs. I couldn't manage oh, wow. things like that. Um, and we were talking about my ex-neighbor and his sense of space and ability. Um, I would go places if there was a sloped floor, like in the subway, on the platform that you know they slope so water drains to me it would feel like i was falling off the edge of a cliff oh wow and and i would have to you know somehow make my way back to a wall and just sit there you know for 15 20 minutes um and, until that false sense uh because it's not real obviously um but until that passed and then I could go back out and catch a subway and get where I was going. So there's all sorts of, of things um, that go along with that until your brain starts to heal. Well, if that's it starts a, to heal. Yeah. I know uh, <clears throat> that these type of issues are talked a lot about in football players since mm -hmm. they're um, one of the biggest sports or the biggest sport that gets concussions and mm -hmm. that's a whole nother topic for another day. Uh, now, you said this happened in 2009 and they, that you died multiple times. Mm -hmm. How did they find out that it was your heart and not something in your brain causing you to pass out? Well, first is a question of whether I have a brain or not to cause this. <laughs> <So. clears throat> um, they eventually, after 
a whole bunch of misdiagnosis and, you know, having cognitive medical bias saying they kept trying to prove I was having a heart attack. And hmm. the, the main way they do that is uh, they do a blood test. And when you have a heart attack, your heart muscle dies and it gives off a couple of enzymes and they see that in your blood. Um, but, you know, after like 15 tests and it's showing I'm not having a heart attack, you know, maybe move off your spot doctors and uh, look for something else. So they eventually put on something called a halter monitor, which is uh, named after Dr. Halter. And it's a portable recording device that records your, your heart for two days, three days. The new ones can do five days because they're digital. And they eventually put one on me. And it, that was uh, Friday afternoon in the hospital. And they said, okay, we want to see what's going on with your heart because maybe it is your heart. And by the way, uh, we need your bed. So you have to leave the hospital. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> it, was, it was just amazing. And no bedside manner. Got it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I want to inject here that I, this is in no way a bashing of the medical system. Uh, this is just what happened you know yeah. every industry has a continuum of you know superstars and at the bottom end it's the how the fuck did you get this job and why haven't you been <laughs> fired yet and and also i would say and you and i talked about this in our intro call of being our own medical advocate because yes. so many the medical field is absolutely fascinating that doesn't mean the answer that they're giving you is they may not know to dig enough or you, like for me I've done it where I didn't give them a symptom that changed everything so mm -hmm. that is I love that you're talking about an underlying way that you're being your own medical advocate mm -hmm. it uh, a couple it really helped in a couple of other instances <clears throat> excuse me so um they put in a pacemaker and uh it started failing in 2013 so i would my heart would stop again while i was doing whatever riding a bike in the middle of nowhere walking somewhere um and you know i would crack my head again and went into the hospital and they couldn't figure out what was going on initially because pacemakers don't fail. So that, you know, they weren't even looking at that. They were trying to find something else bizarre with me. And uh, they eventually, one, um, uh, a doctor who wasn't my doctor just put his hand on the pacemaker and moved it. And uh, Okay, I'll take a step back. Pacemaker is a, a little supercomputer, maybe the size or, or even smaller than a pocket watch. Okay. And they insert it over the muscle uh, in your chest. And depending on your condition, they thread wires from the pacemaker to your heart to send the electrical current that's not being produced. Okay. And uh, so I had uh, what's called a dual chamber pacemaker. So one wire would go to my atria, one would go to my ventricle. Okay. And uh, when he moved the pacemaker, because you can feel it, I can feel it here. And I can feel it here because I've actually got two. We'll get to that in, in a moment. <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, you know, he moved the pacemaker and I went, so uh, they realized there's something wrong with the pacemaker and then they narrowed it down pretty quickly that one of these wires or leads as they're called, uh, it was malfunctioning. Then they found out that it was cracked. Really quick for our audience because uh, some people are listening instead of watching. He, uh, Fred just made the expression of 
they moved the pacemaker and my guess is that you went clinically dead again. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Please continue. <coughs> um, so they, they figured out that the pacemaker lead had cracked. The, wow. There's insulation on it so that the current can go through. So it's just like, you know, any other electrical cord, like, you know, we've got insulation on them. And they decided I had to have the lead replaced. And um, they never put much thought into why might this have happened. But about 10 days later, uh, we got a theory as to why it might have happened. Um, <clears throat> so they went to put in the new pacemaker. And when they put in the first one, I was asleep for the whole thing. So I have no idea what happened. For this one, they've changed the technique, different hospital, different doctors, and uh, you're awake. <laughs> so that doesn't they, sound pleasant whatsoever. No, and they, they freeze you up just like, a, I guess they use similar to what a dentist uses to numb you up. And with me, they used a laser scalpel. And I was already anxious going in and they used some weird antiseptic on me that was making me feel like I wasn't breathing properly. And then they started using the laser scalpel <clears throat> and you can actually feel or smell your, your flesh burning. Is there like, who, who thinks this is a good idea? I don't know. Um, like, you know, get a vacuum hose or something like <laughs> Um, and then I have a big scoreboard in front of me that monitors all your vitals. And when I guess they move the pacemaker again slightly. And by this point, it's happened to me enough times. I know when my heart is stopped. Uh, you know, it might be only for a second, second and a half, but I, I know it's happening. And before it even showed up on, on the monitor, I just went, oh, fuck, I'm gone. And and then I was gone. And uh, and then bedlam ensued. So that um, OK, I, I know the audience cannot see all the facial expressions of like. Uh, ew, that I have right now, just because mm -hmm. I get really gross out, even with blood or scabs or anything, they all gross me out yet. It, it is so important to know about the process. Now, were they able to replace the pacemaker then? Not in that surgery. <clears throat> so what happened in the interim is they had to resuscitate me and they have these electrical pads that pass a current through you. And it's sort of like um, the defibrillators you see on TV when they go mm -hmm. clear and but this fires like every two thirds of a second. Mm -hmm. And uh, apparently I was only out for 10 to 20 seconds. Uh, and when I came to, um, you're just getting the, the shit shocked out of you. And, and it feels like you're getting kicked in the ribs or you know getting oh, a massive wow. beat down. <clears throat> so I, I said, okay, I'm back. Like you guys can stop with the CPR or whatever you're doing to me. And then somebody yells out, shut the fuck up. We're trying to save your life. And then somebody else shouts out something like, no, keep talking. So we know you're okay. And uh, then they start scrambling because they, they have to find a temporary pacemaker to insert um, to keep me alive. Cause this one's obviously uh, not safe for me right now. So nobody knew where it was. Um, I guess they don't keep these in the supply closet. I don't know. So. <laughs> okay. Um, so people are, it's not like you see on TV where when they say code blue, code blue. And then, uh, you know, the specific eight people or whatever that you need are there in 14 seconds with all the right medicines and all the right equipment. <clears throat> And uh, so it took them a while to find 
the temporary pacemaker. So I was still getting shocked and shocked and shocked. And they finally bring one back and the, they say, well, where's the rest of it? Because they only brought the pacemaker part. They didn't bring the wires part. So they had to, <coughs> they had to go off and, uh, and find the wires and bring them back. In the interim, uh, they insert the wires through your femoral artery, which is the long artery that goes down all the way to your, your calf, I guess, and comes up through your groin. So what should have been done is they should have doused me with antiseptic and uh, some numbing agent because they have to cut you open to get into that, uh, that artery, uh, which they didn't do. So it was like, yikes, uh, that was pretty painful. Um, and then they weren't sure that they inserted the temporary pacemaker uh, very securely. So I was stuck and more than bed rest. I was like, don't freaking move rest. Oh, uh, wow. For another seven days until they made sure I didn't get an infection. <clears throat> and then they uh, they tried again. Did did round two go better? Slightly. Okay. <laughs> they they also had uh, difficulty. So before that surgery, I advocated for myself and said, "Okay, uh, I'm not having this laser scalpel thing again, and we're using a different antiseptic, and all that stuff's got to change." Mm -hmm. And so they accommodated me, but then during the surgery, I noticed I kept falling asleep. And when I'd wake up, the clock had moved like another 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 40 minutes. And uh, they couldn't thread the new pacemaker lead through the vein. So I'd wake up and my doctor's on like a video conference with other surgeons around the world trying to figure out what the hell to do. How do we fix this? And uh, this uh, surgeon was no slouch. He's like, you know, a top 20 in the world in his field. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was definitely something unique. Mm -hmm. And I didn't find that out for another couple of years what happened. But what happened is my vein had collapsed. So my two surgeries didn't have these two recent surgeries. I didn't have any trauma that would have caused the vein to collapse because they didn't get that far. Right. So the theory is that something happened in the first surgery that caused the vein to collapse. So with your very say, first pacemaker. Yes. So the okay. 2009, the initial surgery. Okay. And this collapse of the vein, uh, is probably what damaged the pacemaker lead to start with. And then it just kept, the little crack got bigger and bigger and bigger until it became problematic. So and that's my- they were able to get that one in eventually. Yes. yes. And how long did that one last? Uh, till 2018. So I should mention a pacemaker should last seven, 10, 12 years. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, usually it's the battery that dies. Okay. <clears throat> so they have to replace the pacemaker unit. Okay. Which should be simple. So in 2018, the same thing started happening again. And uh, so it was a quicker find this time because they knew it was possible. So they decided they were gonna do a completely different surgery this time. And they were going to insert a second pacemaker, put two brand new leads in on the right side. So for your listeners, I'm motioning to the right side of my chest where my second pacemaker is. And uh, then they were just gonna turn off the original pacemakers and, and you know say good riddance. So, <clears throat> Of course, uh, I said to the uh, surgeon, 
you know, after what happened to me the last two surgeries, could you please just put me to sleep? Like, mm -hmm. if you guys are going to kill me again, I want no part of it. <laughs> just, you know, kill me while I'm asleep. So, uh, so they obliged me. And when I was waking up in recovery, I noticed that this surgery had also taken a ridiculous amount of time. I think it took like five hours. Oh, wow. Um, because for some reason, they couldn't get the second pacemaker lead inserted. I don't know if it's, I've got too much junk in my heart or, uh, or what is going on. I don't have a clear answer on that. So they had to come up with something on the fly. So this newest pacemaker is now a backup to the malfunctioning pacemaker. And they have to set up the sensors. So when the older pacemaker malfunctions, the new one will kick in uh, as a backup. But it takes a while to get those synchronized. It's not an exact science. So it probably took a good two years before I stopped having these little episodes where my heart would stop for three, five, eight seconds or whatever. And, you know, I kind of go out for a little bit, not completely. And I was told that I was one of only eight people in the world that have two pacemakers functioning simultaneously so i'm not sure if that's you know urban myth or that's a reality I mean, that really does go with your one in a million or closer mm -hmm. to one in a billion yeah <laughs> so you're very unique um mm -hmm. all right so that was 2018 it's and then it took till 2020 to get your two pacemakers to synchronize. Have you had any of the, for lack of a better term, pass out episodes? Uh, no, <clears throat> thankfully, um, I'm, I haven't. So uh, I actually just came from, I mentioned this morning, I went to the cardiologist and uh, they also do a pacemaker check. So absolutely no malfunctioning in in the pacemaker over the last uh, 12 months for sure sweet that's good news at least yes want some bad news with it no but you know you mentioned it might as well hear it i've only got nine months of battery left in the original pacemaker Shit. so i'm going to have to go in again and for everyone listening, <coughs> these episodes are recorded months in advance because scheduling and things like that, making sure we can get episodes out. And it is the beginning of April, 2022, when we're recording this. So everyone, when you listen to this and anyway, no matter when you listen to this, please send Fred lots of love and hugs and good vibes because this is a lifelong thing. Now. So many curiosity questions. Like, at one point, did you decide to start wearing a helmet everywhere, <laughs> or like putting um, you in a bubble? No, one of the original doctors uh, who misdiagnosed me suggested that I wear one of those Nerf helmets, uh, and that I was just going to have to live with this condition forever. And I had had a competing medical opinion that. What he he was diagnosing me with something called vasal vagal syndrome. Uh, we have the vagus nerve, which controls all your unconscious functions in your body. Mm -hmm. And um, have you ever come across people that like if they see blood or uh, a broken limb or something, maybe yourself? They sorry. pass out. Yeah, that has so happened he, to me a few times. So yes. So that's what your condition is called. Um, and it's an overreaction from your vagus nerve. Okay. Uh, but usually if somebody has that condition, it starts presenting itself in your teen years or early adult years. It doesn't start showing up in the middle of nowhere when you're in, when you're in your mid forties. So it was a wrong diagnosis. The other diagnosis I had was somebody telling me 
I needed a pacemaker. And, and these doctors just wouldn't listen to him. So we had the answer, could have saved me a lot of trauma, um, but sometimes doctors, you know, that ego gets in the way. That's, I've had friends with similar occurrences where they are in their thirties. Um, one particular friend, she's in her thirties and they wouldn't believe her that she needed pacemaker. And it took her years of working with some of the top hospitals in the world for them to finally believe that she needed a pacemaker and it's helped yet. There's not ever all of her health issues are resolved. And Mm -hmm. It's just crazy <clears throat> to think that it's h- how important it is that we need to advocate for ourselves medically. I I know you and I talked about this in our intro call a while back and how you know I went through surgeries of I had um I've had these my like they're not quite migraines. They were pressure headaches on my right temple. And they would happen so sporadically over the years that I never knew what quite caused them. And then when I, in 2020, I started getting them so often and I would wrap scarves around my head that as tight as can be, that it would cut off circulation to everything else that I went to a neurologist and they're like, yeah, this isn't common. Kind of sounds like you need surgery. And I, when I was, thanks doc. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, when I was a kid, my skull formed differently, which concerned my mom. And so it's, I don't know how to say it, Barrow or Barrow. It's like one of the top neurosurgeons in the country and they're in Phoenix, which is where I'm from and where I was living that, I was a kid when my mom had MRIs done. So I had CAT scans or MRIs done of this and had proof. For some reason, my mom convinced me to keep them for over 30 years. And Mm -hmm. I went back to Barrow or Barrow (laughs) and they told me, no, arachnoid cysts, they're super common. Don't worry about it. Like it'll go away. And I'm like, no, dude, like, these are debilitating. Like I can't do anything when these happen. And so they took a look at it and they had to do a risky surgery. They told me, they were like, Hey, this may not work, but we'll try to get a little tunnel to let the arachnoid cyst drain because it shouldn't be be building up pressure. And lucky enough, it worked. And I'm amazing. So fortunate. It's been almost two years. And I was telling you on our call, um, as an update, I just had my, I have to have a yearly MRI and my arachnoid cyst actually went down in size. So it's working. Yay. It's amazing. Yet so so many individuals don't have that type of success story for their Mm -hmm. own medical life. Yeah. My sister is a legal nurse. So she helps lawyers on malpractice cases. And the three most common sources of medical error are misdiagnosis and miscommunication. Uh, And why there's misdiagnosis is a lot of it's ego. And, you know, a nurse will spend a 12-hour shift with you. You're lucky if you see a doctor for five minutes, you know, every Mm -hmm. third day. Mm -hmm. Um, drug inconsistencies. So people either take the wrong drug or given the wrong drug Mm -hmm. or um, in a surgery, something gets left inside. Like, oh, oh shit. That's where my Rolex went. Sorry, dude. (laughs) I was wondering what that ticking was. Yeah. (laughs) That's crazy. And that, that leads me to especially when this start, first started happening in 2009, have they said that, um, because I've, I've heard of in, like we hear on the news and, you know, I, I don't have an exact pinpoint of this knowledge, but 
people with very high stressors, like men that are CEOs can be incredibly athletic and drop dead from a heart attack where, um, but then we also hear from many heart associations that we need to work out all the time. We need to eat Mm -hmm. right. Um, it could be, a family history. Do you have any of those common, I, I guess, precursors to leading to any of this? Um, well, I've been obese most of my life. Uh, I'm not as obese as I used to be. Um, at one point I weighed 340 pounds. Now I'm probably about 240. I gained a little bit back during COVID like so many other people. Um, usually uh, a heart attack is when some sort of plaque in your artery comes loose and then it jams it up and sort of makes like a, a beaver building a dam and, and obstructs the, the blood from going to wherever it's supposed to go in that artery and then the heart muscle dies. So that's the very simple overview of what a heart attack is. Uh, mine is not a heart attack. Okay. Mine is simply the electrical. So <clears throat> the battery went dead. They don't know why. Um, it's, uh, you know, could have been a congenital thing, but it probably would have shown up earlier mm-hmm. in, I think one out of 30,000 births has some sort of congenital electrical defect, but mine went from zero to a hundred, you know, just like that. Mm-hmm. So they're not really sure what happened to me. Oh, wow. And you haven't had a family history of it. Your sister doesn't have any of these issues. No, no. Wow. Not my brother, not my parents, nothing. Goodness. And I I do want to ask because I've had friends that have experienced this and I actually had a, a good friend pass away when I was in high school that they were treated very differently in the medical system because they were obese. And so many people just blamed everything on obesity. Did, mm-hmm. did you have doctors do the same type of experience did, or did they even mention it? Well, I think that's one of the reasons they kept looking for a heart attack. Cause I was the stereotypical, you know, overweight white male, um, not exercising enough. Although I, I, did exercise. I used to exercise quite a bit, actually. Um, and so they were just caught in their own stereotype. And, uh, but I don't think it was a cause per se. Yeah. And, and that brings me to something that we actually talked about on our intro call. And right before we started uh, this um, episode was you lost a hundred pounds, dude, like that's huge. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. And how did you end up doing that? And how is that affecting your medical liveliness? Well, a part of it, I did the hard way, the old calories in calories out, you know, eat less, um, which we're now finding out is a fairly flawed system of weight loss, because most people who lose weight that way, you know, ultimately gain it back and more, uh, So before my surgery in 2018, I was at my cardiologist's office and he comes into the room and he literally throws a book at me. And the book was The Obesity Code by Dr. Jason Fung. It's a New York Times bestseller. So he's a nephrologist, uh, a kidney specialist um, at one of the hospitals in Toronto. And he was tired of having all his patients lose limbs and kidneys and stuff from type 2 diabetes. And he did some research and he found what he believed was a solution. And that was intermittent fasting. So this book is about intermittent fasting. And he explains why intermittent fasting helps your body lose weight. Um, And it's only, I guess, six or seven years since he wrote that book. 
and we know so much more about intermittent fasting now. And the reality is it does so much healing for your body uh, before it gets to the weight loss. So when you intermittent fast, it activates all these subsystems in your, in your body that just tells it how to heal itself. And I grew up playing hockey in Canada outside. It's a law. You, you grew up in Canada, you have to play hockey outside. Uh, I played football. I played college rugby. I was obese for a long period of time. And my body used to ache every joint. Like it was unbelievable how, how much pain this was. And there were days I felt like I couldn't get out of bed. Since I've been fasting, I don't have an ache or pain in my body. I don't get any migraines. I don't get headaches, except for COVID. I've never gotten sick. Um, every bit of inflammation in my body is gone. Wow. And uh, it's not just a story that's applicable to me. Uh, as you know, I was a moderator in a very, very large Facebook group. Uh, of intermittent fasters and you would just hear story after story after story of people not only losing weight but you know uh, women had their PCOS uh, go away um, you know all sorts of con medical conditions all sorts of autoimmune conditions uh, went away and the doctors are stunned part of the story that I left out is the first time I went in the hospital in 2009, they told me I was type two diabetic. I had no idea. So they put me on the traditional insulin and metformin and uh, said, you know, this is a chronic condition. You'll, <clears throat> you'll never get off the drugs. You'll have to take more drugs and uh, you're probably gonna lose a limb or two. And, uh, you know, that's not a lot of incentive for somebody to, to clean up their life if you know that it's not going to make a difference anyway. Within six months of me starting intermittent fasting, I was no longer type 2 diabetes and I was off insulin. Wow. That is, that's powerful. And I do want to pause and just say to the audience, we, Fred is talking about his own experience and by no means are we giving like medical advice or diet advice or food advice, it's learning about what works with, for other people. So if you want to explore it, there's definitely, uh, I know there's a book that Fred loves. We'll link it into the podcast notes and you can explore it on your own. I, and Fred and I talked about this a bit before we started recording. And as I said, I, we're, we're recording this in April. I started doing intermittent fasting about a week ago, so <laughs> updates to come. And I know that for myself, I feel great, yet it's not for everyone. And please do your research, check what feels good, check with your doctor. You know, this is, I just know that it played into Fred's story. And mm -hmm. Now, Fred, before we start closing up, is there anything that we started or that we didn't talk about today that you wanted to talk about? Um, most of my neurological recovery, I attribute to the fasting. And we know that uh, the fasting activates these things called neurotropic, neurotropic factors. Um, that will heal nerves, build new synapses and get rid of scar tissue in every area of your body. So it's fascinating. But I wanna thank you for bringing up the medical concern issue. Um, we know in general, there are three people, three types of people that shouldn't do fasting. Uh, people who have had eating disorders, women who are pregnant or women who are breastfeeding. You, absolutely shouldn't do fasting. If you start it uh, and you're on medications, you absolutely have to work with your doctor because many medications are size dependent. And as you lose weight and your condition lessens, uh, you know, you might have to reduce your doses. 
And that's what I did with my insulin. I went to the diabetes clinic every two or four weeks and they adjusted my glucometer, which told me how much insulin to take. And then, you know, it just went down and down and down. Um, if I hadn't done that, I would have been taking way too much. I could have gone into insulin shock. Which as someone that has lived with a type one diabetic and a type two diabetic, if you have too much insulin or you go too <laughs> low, that can cause hospitalization, if not death. So please, 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 to Fred's point, check with your doctor. And, and this is on any type of diet or life change or food change. This is not just with IF is the short version of intermittent fasting. And thank you again for saying that there are people that maybe shouldn't look at, at it, but I, I sincerely hope that hearing about your, what you've overcome medically really does help others advocate for themselves and really analyze what they're being told and ask questions. Now, do you have any words of wisdom for our audience? Uh, there's a lot of people out there that are going through challenges. And while I can't say I've walked in your shoes, I, I have walked beside you in some manner or jog beside you or, you know, been trying to catch up to you. And your, your mindset is so important. And again, I'm not saying it's easy to be all happy and smiley and unicorny. Um, but don't compare yourself to anybody else. There's a saying that uh, comparison is the thief of joy. Mm -hmm. There's so much joy around, you know, your situation is your situation. Grab as much joy as you can. Uh, the better your attitude, the easier your fight, whatever it is, is going to be. Thank you for that. And I feel like that is just a really good nugget to remind ourselves of. And I know for myself, there's many times that I'm like, the podcast isn't moving enough. We're not getting enough listeners because at a certain point, we're able to get uh, ads and things like that to be able to pay for it, to keep it going. And it's frustrating because I'm like, I just want to be able to pay for it all. I, mm -hmm. I can't. In January 2022, I lost my job. And uh -huh. I'm, I need, it's so hard to say that I need support from others to be able to continue sharing this message, changing shit you don't want to talk about into shit to talk about and showing that we're not alone and giving us all hope. And it's, it's definitely something that comparing myself to other podcasts, comparing myself to other nonprofits, to other people's weight loss, to their quote unquote success is something that I've worked hard myself and continue to work hard on because it is really that comparison is the thief of joy. Mm -hmm. And so come on advertisers and potential sponsors. Let's pick up the game and <laughs> give Jen some love. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, for our listeners, if you want to support, please share, like, subscribe, and you can donate. Uh, the link is uh, will be in the episode description as well as on our website. And Fred, how does our audience reach out to you? Uh, you can go to my fairly new Instagram. It's repeatedly dead Fred. Or <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't <laughs> laugh at that, but it's a great name. Thanks. My friend Deanna uh, came up with that name. Um, or you can email me at repeatedly.dead.fred at gmail um, if you, you know, want to publish my book or something like that, uh, or just have questions about fasting or about my story. Perfect. Thank you. And for our listeners, as a heads up, Fred is just submitted his manuscript to publishers and so we definitely any publishers out there please reach out to Fred and also it's 
so much to learn from of Fred's story and to give us hope. Fred, what is something that you're grateful for? I'm grateful for the community that uh, surrounded me and supported me. Uh, I'm grateful that my parents blessed me with this resilience gene that I don't think a lot of people have naturally, but can be developed. Um, and I'm grateful that I can hopefully share my story and positively impact the lives of other people. I love that. And Fred, I'm grateful that this, this is such a weird thing, but during our intro call, I mentioned that I was having surgery, which in my mind is no comparison to what you've been going through. And again, comparison is the thief of joy, but (laughs) (laughs) it's, it meant so much to me that you would reach out and just be like, Hey, how's healing? What are you up to? You still alive? And it's, it's little things like that, that a really made me remember who you are and how much you cared just about a stranger. And also really sets an example of how just reaching out to an individual can mean so much to them, even if it's not said. And I'm very grateful that you came in my life and have already taught me so much. And I'm hoping that we can share that with the audience too. Thank you. It's very nice of you to say. Well, talk to you soon, Fred. And thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me on. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Hello again, beautiful human. What did you get out of today's episode? We'd love to hear what was most impactful to you. We all know someone that could have really used this episode. So please send it their way. Remind them that they're not alone. Stay tuned for new episodes every Wednesday. Here's a few ways that we could really use your support to keep shit you don't want to talk about going. Share an episode. Let's get the message out there. Donate on PayPal or Patreon. Subscribe and rate the show on iTunes or Spotify. And follow us on social media. Shit to talk about. Shit, the number two, talk about. Bye.